on behalf of the congregation of Cornerstone Reformed Church in Carbondale, Illinois, greetings um, from a sister church, and we, we appreciate being in fellowship with you. This morning, as continuing the theme that I've been teaching on this past, uh, these, uh, yesterday and today, uh, we're going to focus on prayer, but we're going to focus on the Lord's Prayer as Jesus gave it to us in Luke's Gospel. So if you want to follow along, you can look in Luke chapter 11 and read along, or you can simply sit and hear the Word of God. In Luke 11, beginning in verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot go up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not go up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will, he will rise and give him what he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Father, by Your Spirit... Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive, love, and obey all of your holy word as you give it to us this day through your servant. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, prayer is a wonderful privilege. It's a gift from God. One of the beauties of prayer is that our smallest children can engage in it along with the most mature saints. God admits all levels of participation. Yet as we grow older, we discover that there remains so much left to learn about it. Like, learning to, like getting to know God Himself, our fellowship with Him through prayer will continue to deepen the rest of our lives. The disciples understood this, and that's one reason they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And so Jesus teaches His disciples to pray. Now, as is common in Luke's gospel, we find Jesus praying at the beginning of chapter 11. From the time he called his disciples, he has been training them to take up his mission, giving them his authority, and to imitate him. And for all their bumbling around, at times the disciples are committed to Jesus and they want to follow him. This is evident in their request for Jesus to teach them to pray. They want to do what he is doing. John the baptizer taught his disciples how to pray. Now they want Jesus to teach them how to pray. Now immediately the question might pop up in our minds, don't the disciples already know 
how to pray. They've been praying since they were children. They were Jews, after all. They've been in the synagogue, and they've been in the temple. They have the Psalter memorized, most likely. Why are they asking Jesus to teach them to pray? It's because Jesus is introducing the kingdom of God, a new age, and a new situation calls for new ways to pray. How do we pray as those who are part of this new world? And Jesus is more than willing to teach them how to pray. Now, before we get into the prayer itself, which we will only cover briefly, we really need to answer that question, what is prayer? Something that I covered uh, Saturday morning. Like so many other things, we might assume that we know what it is. And because when we, we think we know what something is, we never, we never think about it too much. We never question our understanding. We need sometimes to revisit some things and get some clarity. Sometimes we might think of prayer as words that span a great distance between us and God, reaching a distant God who is quite separated from us. And this is certainly a misunderstanding. Prayer is intimate. Prayer is joining in the eternal conversation of Father, Son, and Spirit, being drawn into that eternal conversation by the Spirit in the Son with the Father. God has brought us into His family, something emphasized in the prayer that Jesus gave us. We are united to this triune family in the Son and by the Spirit. They are and have been always in eternal conversation. When God puts His triune name on us in baptism and brings us into the, fellow, into the family fellowship, He wants us to participate in that conversation that involves everything, getting to know one another, talking about our needs, giving thanks and praising one another, talking about what's going on in the world, and talking about the future. Prayer is not, as ancient and modern pagans alike characterize it, speaking to an aloof deity with whom we, have, we share little in common except the fact that we need one another. Prayer is not the appeasing or appealing of an otherworldly, cold bureaucrat. Family, uh, prayer is a family conversation. All who are part of the family should want to join the conversation. We need to participate in this conversation because we need the strength that, of these familial bonds. And we need to stay on the same page with the family, as it were. There's an intimacy in Christian prayer that is not true about most and of all other religious expressions. Jesus teaches his disciples how to enter this conversation, how to pray. Now, there are several features about this prayer that Jesus gave us that jump out of jump out at us even before we begin to examine the details of the addresses and petitions first i want you to notice that jesus gave them a prayer when he said teach us how to pray he gave them a prayer he didn't give them an outline for prayer he didn't give them a theology of prayer he gave them a prayer what jesus says is not about prayer it is prayer he comments on prayer after he gives them the prayer, but he tells them, say this. <laughs> you may also use this prayer as something of an outline, but first and foremost, it is a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Second, unlike me, the prayer is brief, all right? Even if we use Matthew's version, which we do every Lord's, which, which most people do every Lord's Day, the prayer takes a few seconds to pray. It is dense. 
with scriptural allusions and theologies, but it is brief, much like the, the liturgical prayers you pray within your Sunday liturgy. They are brief, but they are dense with allusions, allowing us to meditate on those things and unpack them at times. Third, the primary focus of the prayer is on the sanctifying or hallowing of God's name through the coming of his kingdom. Our needs and petitions for God to meet those needs are set within the context of this larger vision and mission. Fourth, this is a corporate prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray with the pronouns us and our throughout, not I, me, and mine. This is a prayer that we are to be praying together liturgically, to be sure, but it is also a prayer that even when I am praying privately, I find my life situated in the community of God's people and our common cause, our common mission. Now let's move to the prayer itself. Jesus begins by telling his disciples to address God as Father. Even though it is appropriate to address God as Almighty God or Sovereign God or some other biblical title, Jesus tells his disciples to address God as Father. There's an emphasis here on the, on the filial relationship with God. And he's going to come back to that when he comments on prayer after he teaches them to pray. If he is our father, that means we are his sons. We are his children. Now, who is the son? Who calls God father? Now, don't jump too quickly to answer that question. Israel calls God father. God calls Israel his firstborn in, e, in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. And Israel, in turn, cries out to God as father. The father is the one who delivers his son, who calls his son out of Egypt. Deliverance is a major theme in this prayer. And it is one reason Jesus emphasizes this relationship of his disciples with God as their father. So Israel is God's son. But whom has God recently declared to be his son? Jesus. At his baptism and at his transfiguration, the Father says that Jesus is his beloved Son. Jesus is Israel, the true Son who, as you can see throughout Luke, will go through the Exodus in Jerusalem. This was announced on the Mount of Transfiguration. He talked to Moses and Elijah about the Exodus that he would accomplish in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, because he is the embodiment of Israel. He is God's son. Now, all those joined to him, his disciples, are the true Israel, those who can call upon the Father to deliver them, a petition that is, in fact, in this prayer. We are a part of the family where the Father is the head. When Jesus encourages his, his disciples to pray after teaching them his prayer, he will further tease out what it means for God to be his, their Father. After entering into, God, into the Father's presence with this address, our first petition is, Hallowed be your name. Now what we must recognize immediately is that this is a petition and not an ascription. That is, we are not simply recognizing God's name is holy, but we are praying that His name will be made holy. Or His name will be sanctified. God's name is definitely holy. The Scriptures are clear on this throughout, throughout, the, whole of, throughout the whole of the Bible. 
To say that God's name is holy is to say that God reveals that he is holy. That say his name is holy is to say that he reveals himself as holy. God's name is the revelation of his person, who he is and how he acts. He puts his name in Jerusalem and in in the temple, for instance. To know his name is to know him. When God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, he reveals his name. And he reveals his name in these words. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is Yahweh's name. God's holy name is bound up in the way that he acts. He is holy and therefore he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is God's holy name. Now God has put his name on his people. We are the temple, the place where God's name dwells. We are the one who have the name of God in our baptism. So what are we asking when we are asking for God's name to be hallowed? We are asking that the Father will act toward us in accord with His covenant, His promises, delivering us. We are God's Son, and we want His name to be hallowed. And for Him to be hallowed, we have to be delivered because His name dwells in us. This petition includes God's name being revealed as holy in His people. That is, His character will be seen in the world in those of us who bear His name. That we will not bear His name in vain or emptily. God's people are delivered by God when He makes us holy and we live as holy as He is holy. We are delivered in part when we share His character because we are delivered from the bondage of sin when we share His character. The desire to see the Father's name hallowed naturally leads into the next petition. Your kingdom come. We desire and pray, our desire and prayer is that God will establish His order in the world. The entire world under the Lordship of His Son. We hear about this quite a bit in the Gospel of Luke, indeed in the, in the whole Gospel corpus. Jesus has said already that the kingdom has drawn near. The kingdom has broken in at this time and it will continue to break in. That that is God arranging everything in the world under the lordship of his son. We desire to see it come in its fullness so that the old order of sin that was established with the sin of Adam is overturned completely. Where sickness and death, oppression and sinful violence are put down and God's peace rules the earth. These petitions assume that we are on a journey And that we are moving towards God's promised future. But we're not there yet. Your kingdom come. It has been inaugurated, but it has not fully come. And we are on this journey. We are along the way towards that kingdom. Now along the way we need provisioning. And the next petition requests that provisioning. 
The translation of this phrase is difficult in both Luke and Matthew. I think, one of the, I think the best way to understand the phrase is given by a commentator author just. Our bread for the coming day, keep giving us day by day. This daily bread calls up images of the wilderness wandering and the provision of manna in the wilderness for the children of Israel, God's son. God's people are healed Uh, excuse me, God's people are headed toward God's promised land and God is providing for them day by day. This is there, but there is more. This is bread of hope. A taste of God's promised future in the present. This is the spies bringing back the fruit of the promised land for the people to see and to taste in Numbers 13. Petition for bread is a petition that God would meet our daily needs to be sure. But our daily needs include hope for the future to keep us sustained on the journey. If you don't have hope, you don't have any reason to live. And what the prayer is praying is that God would continue to give us this bread of hope, this taste of the future, to keep moving us forward. We need our physical needs met. And this includes strengthening, strengthening our hearts by giving us tastes of the future that will encourage us. The food that God provides for us meets our immediate needs and is a foretaste of a great kingdom banquet being prepared for us in the future. This is seen most clearly when we share the bread that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Supper. This is tomorrow's bread today. This is a taste of the future, a taste of the banquet to come. Continuing this theme of deliverance, that from which we need deliverance is our sin. Sin is the problem. Forgiveness of sins is the release from the penalty and power of sin. It is to be justified. Sin is the power that lies behind all that keeps the world from being properly developed into the place God created it to be. Sin is the power behind the the powers that oppress, maim, and kill God's people. Sin is the ongoing problem in the church's journey. Jesus gave us this prayer to pray as his people, those who call God Father, because we want deliverance from our sins. He is the one who delivers us. We have an ongoing battle with sin in the church. There is is no uh, premature triumphalism in this prayer. There's recognition that we need forgiveness. This forgiveness is broader than praying for my personal forgiveness of sins. As a corporate prayer, it is a petition to forgive our sins. We participate with the rest of the church and we confess the sins of the entire church even though we may not personally be guilty of those things because we confess with the entire church because we share those things, that we share those sins with the entire church. We are in union and communion with the rest of the body of Christ. We participate in their sufferings. We participate in their sins. Even where we don't personally participate in those certain sins, we identify with our brothers and sisters and we pray for our forgiveness, for our release from these sins. And in doing so, we follow our Lord, who though He was without sin, identified with us in our sins in His baptism, through His wilderness fasting, and ultimately in His death. 
for God to answer this petition with forgiveness, we must first have forgiven those who have sinned against us. It is interesting the way Luke puts this, those indebted to us. Matthew makes this even more pronounced. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There will be those who sin against us, who incur moral debts from us. Why is it necessary to to forgive in order to be forgiven? Are you earning your forgiveness by forgiving others? No, not at all. It goes to what uh, talked about in some of the other sessions. Forgiving others reveals that you share the character of God. You share His holy name. Remember the one who forgives sins. You share His holy name that you are a true child of the Father. Those who don't forgive, who refuse to forgive, who, who, who won't receive forgiveness because this is out of harmony in sharing God's life with Him. You're out of step with the divine family. As the Father's children who desire to share His holiness and be delivered from our sins, we desire not to face anything that would tempt us toward disloyalty to our Father along the way. The petition, lead us not into testing, voices the desire of God's people at this point. Again, echoes of Exodus and wilderness wandering are here. Moses tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 8 that God tested them in the wilderness to see what was in their hearts. Jesus himself was tested in the wilderness back in Luke chapter 4. God tests his people, putting them in difficult circumstances to reveal what is in us and to mature us. But in these tests, what God means for good, the devil means for evil. The devil takes these tests and he twists them to tempt us to sin. The petition requests that we not be tested so that there is not an occasion for us to be tempted to fall away. And as we wait for the coming kingdom and continue on the journey following Jesus, this is what we are to be praying. But how can we be sure that we will be heard, and that the Father will grant our requests. Jesus moves to that and encourages his, his disciples to pray. Jesus could have gone a number of different directions after he instructed his disciples in the, dis, in the disciplines of prayer. However, he chose to focus on the character of our Father to tell us how willing he is to be to answer our prayers. Remember, prayer is a family conversation with God as our Father, the Son as our older brother, and the Spirit binding us to one another in love. It is with that understanding that Jesus focuses on the character of the Father as both friend and Father. Jesus gives us two interrelated images that reveal the character of God. He is friend. He is Father. The first story Jesus tells would have sounded a bit absurd to everyone around because of the conventions of hospitality at the time. Even though someone may have thought, I'm not getting up and giving you bread in the middle of the night when I have, cl- when I have to climb over all of my children and, and disturb them all, he probably would have gone ahead and gotten up anyway. He, he may have thought it, but he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have refused his friend. You, that, was, that was a major cultural faux pas. You don't do that. The common conventions of hospitality this time being, uh, being so embedded in the culture, the man would have immediately gotten up, given the man what he needed because he was his friend. Nevertheless, in the story, the friend remains persistent to the point 
of impudence or shamelessness so that the man gets up and gives him what he needs. Jesus assures his disciples with the implication that their father is much more generous than this man to ask, seek, and knock. And they will receive, find, and it will be opened to them. He is talking to those who are his disciples, those who joined with him, call God their father. What is being asked for, sought, and what do we want opened to us? All those things prayed for in the prayer that Jesus taught us. That's what we want. That's what we desire. We want deliverance. We want God's name to be sanctified. We want His kingdom to come. We want daily bread. We want forgiveness. We want relief from testing. We want strength for our journey. And we want full and final deliverance. We want all these things. We desire for these things. We groan for these things. Jesus immediately moves into the comparison between evil earthly fathers and our good, infinitely good, heavenly Father. What would you do as a father if your son had genuine needs and asked you to meet those needs? What if he wanted a fish or an egg? Would you give him a serpent or a scorpion? Jesus has already associated both of these with demonic forces over whom he has had authority earlier in Luke. Do you think that your heavenly father is going to give you over completely to the devil? Do you think that he will not deliver you? Would you do that to your son? Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you long to give good things to your son and you are evil at heart, how much more will your Father, who is perfect in love, in holiness, in mercy, grace, and covenant faithfulness, how much more will He give you what you need, namely the Holy Spirit? The giving of the Spirit anticipates what Luke will record in Acts. The Spirit will empower us and ultimately bring us into our final inheritance. He is the down payment, in fact, of our final inheritance, Paul says in Ephesians 1. He is the glory cloud that leads God's people through the wilderness and into the promised land. He is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who will also raise our mortal bodies. While there are proper qualifications that need to be made to what Jesus is saying about prayer, for example, we will, we will receive what God has promised, not just everything we want. We will receive our needs. While there are those qualifications, there are times that we go beyond Jesus' qualifications to limit what God will do in and through prayer. And here I riff off of an article by Peter Lightheart from a few years ago entitled, Repent of Your Piety. I highly recommend it. The, it, the link is in the notes there. Jesus wants us to pray with full assurance that our Father hears us and will give us what He promises. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, to Him it will be opened. Our Heavenly Father will not give you a serpent instead of a fish, a scorpion instead of an egg. And we must not pray in such a way that impugns the character of our Heavenly Father. 
When we think this way about our Father, we also begin to live this way before Him. We live as if He is a reluctant Father at best, or positively cantankerous Father at worst. Our prayers and our lives before Him begin to take the shape of avoiding prayer, or praying timidly without confidence, giving our Father outs, as it were, because we know that He really doesn't like us very much anyway, and doesn't really care what we have to say or what we have to think, and He, he really doesn't want to listen to us. We're probably a bother to Him anyway. What's worse is that we will cloak all of this in a theology of piety, We make theological excuses for our Heavenly Father, and it comes out as pious. What it is, however, is unbelief, pure and simple. No matter how you dress up the pig, it's still a pig. We use God's sovereignty as an excuse. God is sovereign, He does whatever He pleases, and my prayers make no difference. Is God sovereign? Of course He is. God is so sovereign. That he can make big and bold promises to his children, call them to pray for him to fulfill those promises, and we can be assured that he will answer those petitions. God's sovereignty, far from being a disincentive to pray, emboldens our prayers and gives us hope that what he has promised he will certainly bring to pass. Don't be timid in your prayers. Well, I'm just a poor old wretched sinner who doesn't know what to pray for best for my life. I'll just let God figure that out for me. First, you do know what to pray for what is best for your life because God has revealed it. And furthermore, he taught you how to pray. What he has revealed is what you need to pray. There are mysteries to prayers we've talked about. And there are things that we won't be able to figure out, but there are certain things that he has revealed for us and our children. And he has called you to pray those things. That's what he wants for your life. Second, do you think that God didn't know you were a sinner when he called you to pray? He did. And he made provision for that in Christ and forgives you of your sins, calling you into this family conversation. Not to participate because you are all down on yourself is, again, a slap of unbelief in the face of God. It may look pious, but it it isn't. Third, there are times you and I don't know exactly what to pray we have the general prayers to pray but there are specifics for which we don't know how to pray but god has taken care of that as well as we've talked about in romans 8 paul tells us that the spirit makes intercession for us in those times helping our weaknesses what do we do with what jesus says about our good father not giving us serpents and scorpions when we still experience so many bad things in our lives It doesn't appear that our Father always answers our prayers. You have prayed for things that you haven't received. Many of those things were good things, things that were unselfish. You didn't receive them. In fact, it looks like you got just the opposite. Is it that you don't understand the promise, or is it that Jesus' promise isn't fulfilled? I understand the impulse to want to protect God's good name by our lack of understanding, but in this case, God doesn't need protecting. God always answers our prayers and gives us what we ask for or something better. Have you ever thought that the thing for which you were asking, that thing that you think is a fish or an egg, that thing might just be a serpent or scorpion? 
Your father might just be protecting you because there is something you can't see. As that great theologian, Garth Brooks, sings. Thank God for unanswered prayers. We may ask God for this great thing and he gives us suffering. Suffering might be the way and many times is the way to that great thing. The cross is a necessary gift to give us what God has promised. You ask God to take this pain and suffering away, but you want to be holy. He is using it to purge your sin and answer your prayer. He gives us suffering to strengthen our faith. Paul says this in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Whatever happens when we ask our Father for things, we can be certain of this. He is not giving us serpents and scorpions that will be to our demise. He always, always, always gives us what is best for us. We must trust His character. He has proven Himself to us through the cross that He will give everything for us. He will expend everything that He has for us. Whatever He gives us in answer to our prayers, we know that it must be ultimately for our good. So dear Christian, brother and sister, pray. Pray boldly. Pray with the confidence that your heavenly Father hears you because He loves you. He loves you infinitely more than any earthly father ever has the capacity to. And He will not give you Scorpions for eggs. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Our great God and Father, we do thank you for your love for us. That we have experienced in Christ Jesus, poured out into our hearts by your Spirit. Help us now to join you in your work through prayer. Trusting you, praying boldly, living boldly before your presence in the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.